Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is another podcast for the Drugs and Recovery podcast series. And today I've got a former colleague with me, Julia Zampini, who's going to talk to us about her, about her work and about this really awesome research that she's doing called People and Dance Floors. So, Julia, can you tell us who you are? and give us some some um, background about your research. And just, Thanks, just to let everyone know before I carry on is that I'm a PhD researcher with the University of Kent, and that's where I knew, I knew Julia from. We, we were both sort of researchers at the same time for a while. So Julia, tell us about yourself and about your research. Uh, hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, as we, you know, we met at University of Kent, uh, where I also did my PhD. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm obviously, hopefully you can tell from my accent, I'm not British. I've come from Italy, but I've been in the UK since 2003. So I came to the UK and it was a very much the time of new labor, called Britannia, all that sort of stuff. And I think I really bought into, when I was young, the idea of globalization and Europe as a positive force. You know, I thought that uh, you know, I was European, that we that I wanted to get to know the UK as, I guess, an empire, a successful empire uh, through its American connection and before. And, you know, growing up in Italy, uh, you know, most of the music we consumed, the TV, the products we consumed, everything was was American or British. So I think I had that kind of curiosity. Anyway, I moved to the UK and ended up sort of staying and, you know, I did that thing where I, I tried to go to work, <laughs> but then I kept, kept coming back to university because, uh, I don't know, like um, a lot of the jobs that I was doing were not necessarily fulfilling in the same way. Uh, I should say I was, I'm pretty privileged. I'm middle class. And obviously that allowed me to make certain choices in life that maybe I wouldn't have done uh, if it wasn't for um, having uh, financial support from, from the parents. But anyway, um, back to back to the university stuff. Um, so in between my uh, my degree and my master's, no, it was it in between my master's and my PhD. Uh, so I started off with history, a history degree and politics, and then I went on to do a master's in socio legal studies. And then in, whilst I was doing that, I think I started volunteering for an organization called Transform Drug Policy Foundation which is a, 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 um, an organization that exists since the 1990s, and they campaign for kind of drug policy, responsible drug policy reform in the direction of regulation, uh, responsible regulation of all drugs. And so I started volunteering for them, and I was quite young and quite clueless, and I, I felt like I was learning a lot just by listening to them. But after that, I was like, okay, so, so this is what you're saying, and I get your point, I get your argument. You know, they were talking about the effects of drug policy on uh, like poor people, on developing countries. Uh, you know, I think the argument made sense, but I wanted to see, uh, you know, how drugs affected people in different ways. This coming from somebody who, again, is middle class, has lots of experience with drugs, recreationally smokes. So I'm not a stranger to drug. I'm just maybe I, I never had a, a problematic relationship with any drugs apart from cigarettes. Uh, so yeah, so that was my my thing. And anyway, I went to volunteer for a harm reduction um, service in Bristol, mm-hmm. and I got into you know, and that's when uh, around the time where um, there was a a shift really in UK drug policy from harm reduction away from harm reduction and towards a more uh, recovery orientated agenda. So it was very much like we need to inbuilt like build, uh, embed recovery into our services. And, you know, we need to demonstrate that people are recovering. We can't just keep people, uh, you know, on treatment forever. Uh, and that very much came as a, I think, as a political push uh, from the government at the time. So, yeah, so that's how I got into drug policy research. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and ra- round about that time, uh, I think I saw there was a, 
an advert for a PhD uh, scholarship, uh, which was uh, set out to look at the use of evidence in drug policy. So it was set out as, a, as an already themed PhD, uh, and I applied, and I, I, I basically wrote a proposal based on that, and that's how I got to Kent. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's, and that, then, then obviously I met you some years later, but um, yeah, and, and so, so I set out to look at the use of evidence in policy, in policy, the, I, I would say the use, but also understandings of evidence in policy, and I was comparing drug policy with sex work, prostitution policy. Uh, in the UK and Australia, or I should say in England and New South Wales in Australia. So that's, so, that's so the policy, so the evidence related to policy, I would imagine tends to like, tends to focus on the sort of more problematic drug use in the same way that the, the legislation about sex work tends to focus on the most marginalised or, you know, the people for whom things have gone wrong. It never really looks at people who have a happy relationship with drugs or, you know, or quite happy, sort of like engaged and successful and non-damaging sex work. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, that was a part of my reasoning, I think, behind um, behind the People and Dance Force project, uh, trying to uh, make some space for uh, more a positive narratives uh, around the relationship between people and drugs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think if things are problematic, they don't get talked about uh, in the same way. And uh, of course, there is a, there's a dual thing of, uh, it's not just that it's not problematic, but it's also that the activity is stigmatized. So people don't talk about it because it's stigmatized and therefore they don't necessarily want to, um, you know, come out and uh, as drug users or as sex workers, uh, and uh, and uh, maybe uh, taint their reputation as a result. Yeah. So that's one part of it. And of course, the other part of it is that uh, often policy is made and tackles, targets, addresses, uh, you know, uh, people the most problematic uh, of drug users or, or or for example, street sex workers who are also. Um, have a, a, a relationship with drugs or use drugs. So as a result of that, really, like a policy should be made, uh, you know, as a universal thing to, to suit the needs of, you know, of people in general. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that's, not, that's not possible. It's a blunt instrument. instrument. Yeah. Policy is a blunt instrument. Law is a blunt instrument. So it doesn't respond uh, to, 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 to a variety of diversity of needs and 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 uh, desires, I guess. Yeah. No, it it tends to focus on the worst case scenario, doesn't it? And and almost, you know, use that as a norm. Mm. Yeah. So it takes the most extreme example of something and then uses that as a as a as a basis for um, legislation. So can you tell us a little bit about the People in Darts for project? How did that come about? So basically, what happened was that, uh, I guess, as again, as a result of my interest in the relationship between evidence and policy, and whether evidence, how evidence was understood, but also communicated, um, I think I felt I started to kind of become a bit frustrated by the fact that um, there appeared to be a kind of lack of communication or lack of um, understanding between different stakeholders uh, in, in the kind of policy debate and in the policy domain in, in the context of drugs specifically. So, so you know, there would be a lot of uh, discussions between kind of expert high-level stakeholders who use the particular language to communicate, but none of that was necessarily intelligible or accessible to the general public. So, you know, there's discussions about harm reduction that go on, really useful uh, and kind of expert discussions and evidence that is exchanged but not it doesn't necessarily trickle down to people from outside that sort of drug policy bubble so in part the people and dance first project came about in order to kind of uh, bypass the, the academic language and to make narratives people's narratives accessible uh, to all to, for, for all to see to, to, to for all to kind of um, have an emotional connection with so the project uses film uh, precisely for, for that for that purpose. For I, I didn't want to be an academic that translated uh, or um, 
uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, discussed other people's narratives and became like a proxy for other people's narratives. I wanted for those narratives to be uh, accessible to all and for people to, you know, to take center stage uh, and to discuss their experiences without my mediation. So I think that was, uh, you know, in part what, uh, you know, you, the, the kind of ethos that, uh, that I wanted to pursue with the project. And I, I should say, it's not just me, uh, it's, we're a collective of people. So obviously the participants are a, a massive part of the project. They're sort of front and center. And without them, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a project. And also I worked with uh, um, an activist out of Bristol called Dan. Uh, I worked with uh, a filmmaker. Uh, so it's, it's really a kind of labor of love uh, to, and, a, and a partnership with lots of different people. Uh, and more recently, other researchers have also joined the project and we envisioned this as a network. So we want it to be inclusive. We wanted to expand. We want to, for people to be able to use this as an umbrella or as a kind of home for them to be able to develop their own uh, kind of ideas that maybe fall within, um, I guess, yeah, within the, the broad umbrella of people dance floors and the relationship between people dance floors and drugs. Yeah. So, yeah. And for anyone listening in, the, the, the format of the um, of the project is there's um, uh, a, a, is it a twenty minute film that I think yeah. created. There's also an academic journal, which you both of which you can link to from the blog that's attached to this. There's also you you also blog on your website as well. It's it's a kind of multi uh, faceted research that's really accessible it's not hidden behind like a university paywall which is so often the case um and I really I really enjoyed it so can you tell us about the research a bit more about the research methodology that you used yeah so um so I'm a qualitative researcher I, I you know I, I just love to talk and I love to listen <laughs> so that's mainly mainly what I what I do uh, and what I you know in the past that was that you know the the main method that I had adopted was interviews so um so obviously I, I, having no experience in kind of multimedia engagement or filmmaking I sort of approached other people who did have experience and I was like how about doing a, a kind of qualitative interview-based project but that uses film so effectively I mean for me the, the film itself is <laughs> Is like a, is a collection of interviews that is uh, analyzed through thematic analysis. So the same way that I would approach uh, any kind of uh, any interview data or transcript, but uh, done co collaboratively. So we, uh, you know, we we well, we I should say we started off um, conscious of the fact that uh, not everybody uh, wanted to might might want to speak about their drug use on camera because obviously. You know, some people might be comfortable with it, some people might not. So we offered people the opportunity to also do audio interviews, to do audio interviews where their voice would be distorted so that they wouldn't be recognizable, as well as uh, contributing through like written statements and more uh, creative artifacts like photography or uh, poetry or you know, things like that. So we left it really open for people to make a contribution in whatever way they, they wanted to. And so we ended up with like a few written statements, a few audio interviews and a few on camera in face to face interviews. And uh, yeah, and then we, we, we sort of tried to edit it all together into sort of a, some sort of narrative that followed the stories of different, different participants through a thread and identified the main themes, which uh, obviously were in part were sort of led by the questions. The, the questions were about uh, you know, we ask people, what do dance floors mean to you? What do drugs mean to you? And, you know, how do the two things come together in your life? And then we ask people, you know, whether they were comfortable to talk to other people about their drug use, uh, particularly parents, family, work colleagues, uh, just to see, you know, how, you know, how, you know, uh, uh, I guess to, 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 to tackle that kind of taboo uh, or drugs as a taboo subject. And yeah, it's incredible the stuff that people came up with, but uh I should say in the film, there's also a lot of, a lot of like uh, kind of uh, a, a little bit of an, uh, of an attack on alcohol. But that, that wasn't from the question. That was purely from people's, um, people's own kind of frustrations about uh, the differences in which the UK culture uh, particularly approaches alcohol as a drug compared to other drugs. Uh, so the, I guess the hypocrisy that, that, that lies beneath that. Yeah. So that was a theme as well. 
I mean, there were so many themes in this film that even just watching it was was kind of like you could like really pick up themes because there was obviously a kind of like a demographic. You know, we were talking like I think between thirty, the people were speaking were between thirty and forty. They were they I think they were exclusively white, but the way that they were talking about the dance floor and the drug use associated with the dance floor was so. Um, it was it was kind of like it was almost like they're talking about it like a rite of passage they're talking about a time that had been really significant to them when they sort of like started to really kind of embrace life outside of their bedroom basically so like you know with, with a couple of the people talking I got the impression that they bounced straight from their bedroom onto the dance floor and how significant that that, that had been but but also that it wasn't a, a, although they were sort of mem, uh, sort of uh, sort of reminiscing it's not historic. So the tension around that, the, the kind of like dance floor drugs may have like shifted somewhat, but that actually that, that life is still carrying on. Yeah, I mean, I should say about the demographic that we, uh, because we we had to uh, turn the project around very quickly because we were on a tight schedule. So we just went uh, through our uh, existing networks. So yeah. obviously the people that we <laughs> ended up uh, interviewing were very much people in our networks, obviously similar age to us, similar, you know, I guess, yeah, more or less similar background to us. So it's very samey in that respect. But you are right. It's not, you know, it, people are reminiscing and that's sort of, that's very much in line with uh, what a lot of the research on kind of club and leisure studies say about, says about, uh, you know, uh, kind of youth into adulthood transitions and, uh, you know, the kind of ritualistic uh, and uh, participation in, in, in clubs or on dance floors as something of a rite of passage, and but as something very, very significant in people's lives and something that stays, if not through practice, meaning if not through people continuing to engage with the dance floors in their like in the later years, at least through, um, I think, a, a kind of like a sense, an emotion, a, a continued way of connecting with people and perhaps also a socializing and a continued uh, role of drugs in their lives, even if it becomes more sporadic. Yeah. yeah. But also as well, it was like there was an element of protest around the, the dancing and the drug use that I think really was, was really highlighted really well in the discussions that people were having. Because, you know, I think it was at the 1983 Criminal Justice Act or lack of criminal justice. Yeah, that, that sort of like saw this sort of like closing down of the, you know, sort of raves and things like that. And there was a kind of a sense of people uh, reminiscing about a time uh, time past when actually there was a lot more freedom than there is now and actually there was an alternative narrative around drug use yeah it's interesting that there's it's 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 almost like cyclical in a way like you know you had a lot of people are um kind of making comparisons between the criminal justice uh, uh the, the the 1994 um i think it's called criminal justice bill or was it oh, crime and criminal justice or crime and policing I can't remember exactly um, apologize but 1994 and and what's happening today uh, with the new bill and the protests that are um, you know are happening at the moment the kill the bill protests and you know there is a sense of you know again that this kind of cyclical thing and I think it's 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 a strange one I think people you know, find they they still find freedom within those environments because they 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 will come to that environment, the club environment or the, the rave environment, and they will feel like immediately once they kind of, you know, once they pass the threshold, you know, they know that they're with like-minded people. They know that a lot of the people in there are are there to like release and let go and to kind of feel as one uh, and to belong, right? And so it's almost like this kind of temporary autonomous zone or this kind of like environment that is separate. And then the moment they come out, uh, you know, and they kind of go back to their day to day, uh, hopefully they're able to keep the feeling uh, of the experience with them. But they can't, you know, they can't speak about it free. They can't necessarily bring, um, you know, the whole free, that whole freedom or sense of freedom and joy and connection. Like people behave differently when they're at the office or when they're, you know, talking to strangers in a club environment compared to, uh, you know, a, a more kind of routine environment. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I think that's somehow, 
in some way it's a shame and in some way it's like it's almost you know i feel like sometimes people are holding back from really connecting to others maybe sometimes because they're you know inhibited they're afraid or they, you know they don't necessarily want to you know come out and look like idiots whereas i think when people are on drugs especially you know mdma for example they just don't care about what they're going to be perceived like um how they're going to be perceived by others as yeah. much you know they just they, they if they feel like saying to somebody i love you even though they don't know them they will st- they will say it they might hug strangers and and so on and this is what we lose when we look we look at anything just purely through a criminal lens i mean it happens with sex work i think laura augustine has said that actually we look at sex work just as a problem rather than looking at it as a really rich like sort of cultural studies exercise and it's the same with drugs isn't it i mean you know, how much harm is done to society because of this narrative of only looking at drugs as harmful? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a recovered addict. I like, but the issue was never drugs. The issue was like my unresolved trauma. And what, what drugs allowed me to do, and I think what drugs can do, is it's a, it allows you to step out of your day-to-day living. You know, and that is what I really kind of got from the film is that people were reminiscing about the ability to step out of life and then step back in again. And it was really kind of evocative for me. It made me, you know, I used to go to um, the Ministry of Sound when it first opened and like, you know, the whole time and I would be in there for days, like literally. And I would, it would be one experience totally when you were inside the club and then you came out and it was like, oh, okay, I'm back in South London, whereas, whereas, whereas before, where I felt like I'd, I'd escaped to my tribe, you know, I'd been able to step out of, of my current existence and step into something else where I was able to communicate with people on a different level. And I think that space is really, really important. And I think the legislation around drugs takes that space away. Mm. We're actually deprived under this guise of protecting us what we're actually doing, what we're actually deprived of is a space where we can communicate with each other and mm. just, you know, and not, you know, sort of like be at one for a little while. Mm. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's you know, you're, you're completely right in saying that uh, the deprivation of the space and, and the time and the ability to connect with others is, uh, is, is massively problematic for, for people, is, is harmful in itself. So it's problematic, I think, for people's mental health and physical health. So if people are not provided, so, you know, I get really annoyed about uh, people's inability to hold uh, both harm and pleasure or harm, you know, or positive and negative mm. as something that can both be a result of, say, drug taking or dr- drug taking in the context of dance floors. It's like, yeah, there is an element, there's a harmful element. There's also a uh, pleasure element. There is also a well-being element. I mean, all of these things coexist together in the space and in the activity. So it's not just one or the other. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's very difficult uh, somehow uh, uh, f- f- both for, for people to hold that idea and also for, for policy and legislation to reflect that. Yeah. Uh, but but we're, we're able to do it in the context of medicines. And when, you know, when doctors prescribe a drug, they will say, you know, this has side effects, you know, this might make you feel dizzy or it might make you vomit, but at the same time, it might, it might cure you from your illness or it might save your life. So we're ha- able to do that in the context of medicine. And we know that drugs are technologies that can do lots of different things. And that, that they are not in and of themselves either good or bad. They're just, you know, technologies, and they're, you know, things that that can do different things, both harmful and pleasant, and life saving, and 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 potentially deadly. Mm. So yeah, it's just sort of is that ability to 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 think of, you know, any substance like that, uh, and so as a you know, and then after that maybe to have a less, I don't know, uh, kind of a less um, uh, yeah, black and white uh, understanding or vision about what, uh, you know, what, what kind of clubs are for and what they do. Because I think, especially now, especially today, we have this, I don't know, I think it maybe it's because of um, the people we're be- being governed by uh, in the UK. Uh, it, there's very much this kind of division between like, you know, good and bad. This is like the good culture is like, yeah, you know, the BBC and the ballet and, 
just you know just the stuff that uh, maybe uh, a particular demographic and a particular class would engage in uh, but anything else is just seen as like I don't know dangerous or a threat or yeah. not worth investing in even though it's it's you know there is a thriving economy around you know electronic dance music for example but uh, it's not necessarily seen as something that is worth that it, that is that is part of good culture yeah yeah I mean I was I was quite struck, I was struck when I was looking at your website as well when you talk about you know sort of like how the policing of some of these dance halls is so, so is so dangerous you know like the policing around like sort of grime acts and stuff like that I don't know if anyone's familiar with this but grime you know this sort of like uh, you know largely black urban sort of music movement experiences a lot of racist policing you know like a sort of community that that comes under siege is, is constantly under siege is policed through the back door and I was quite I was quite struck as well when when people were talking because they were obviously making the comparison between sort of drugs and and uh, the, the harms of alcohol. But I was just thinking about the, the policing of drugs and how much more damaging that is than the actual drugs themselves. I mean, because, you know, some of the drugs, that are, some of the drugs that are policed, they've got like this long history of, you know, being really beneficial. I mean, let's not even get into the debate about marijuana and the fact that it gets like like criminalized because the the plantocracy in the deep south has lost its slave labor force and now what they do is they they mm. they, they try to legislate its main competitor hemp you know mm. but yeah it's um uh you know it was it was really kind of it was really nice to see these middle class people who were you know they you know they were doctors and things like that actually talking about drugs in a positive way you know, because actually we need that narrative to balance, don't we? I mean, let's I mean, let's be honest as well. Middle class people are more likely to have a positive experience with drugs than, than working class people, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the main, obviously, because they're, you know, it, it, obviously, of course, middle class people or, or, or upper class people can be can can carry trauma, which may lead them to having uh, or developing a really negative relationship with some drugs. Mm. But I think in the main, middle class people are less likely to be harassed because of their drug use they're you know or policed as well they're more likely to be able to afford buying drugs and therefore you know not not get into debt or not commit any crime in order to acquire them uh you know the and and of course it's it's intersectionality and people's relationship with drug use is is, you know massively massively shapes uh uh trans um trajectories or journeys and that's kind of the, the, the point that we tried to make with the paper that we wrote, uh, you know, reflecting on our own positionality. It was like, you know, each of our experiences uh, of, you know, of the people in the team research team, very different depending on our class of origin, depending on our individual experiences with drugs and so on. But then, you know, at the same time, you know, it's, it, it's important, I think, uh, uh, for people with privilege to talk about drugs and to talk about their relationship with drugs, whether positive or negative. Uh, it's important for people to not hide because if they continue hiding, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with Carl uh, Hart on this. If people continue hiding, they will just perpetuate the same narratives, the same stigma, and they will, they will perpetuate the same stereotypical images of, of who drug users are, what they do, and so on. Yeah. And I just think those images are, are just... That they're damaging primarily to, to, to the people who who have the most problematic relationship with drugs. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and then for anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Carl, Carl Hart is, um, I can't remember which university he's attached to. But he's, I think it's Columbia, yeah, he's, Columbia. He's, yeah. Uh, he's um, I think he's one of the few black tenured professors in the States, isn't he? And he writes a lot about, uh, you know, sort of like the actual kind of like the, the physical effects of drugs and how the majority of people who take drugs, even drugs like heroin, which he also claims to have taken, which was quite brave of him to say, because it's one thing to say, yeah, I was a couple of splits, but to come out and say that you've taken heroin is quite a brave thing for, for, for an academic to do. Um, and he talks about, you know, that the majority of people do not have problematic uh, relationships with drugs and that the people that do 
it's because there's other parts of their life that's problematic. The drugs aren't the issue. The, the pre-existing trauma is the issue. And so he's, he's, you know, his viewpoint is, you know, it's been really, you know, sort of is really important, but again, it gets hidden behind the paywalls of universities and, you know, it doesn't really get discussed very much, which is why this type of research is, is really important, I believe, because it allows it allows people who can't, who don't have access to journals to actually, you know, sort of tune into the debate of what's going on. I mean, I feel like now, I feel like now things are improving. There's, there's, you know, there is, there is a, I think a, a willingness uh, and a need uh, and a, a commitment by a lot of people uh, in, in academia to try to, in academia and beyond, not just in academia, to try to like, find different ways of communicating and I think you know uh, I guess COVID also has been like uh, probably a year in which podcasts have boomed <laughs> and and people have tried to maintain connections somehow uh, despite the enforced uh, physical distance um, so so I, I hope that you know and I was talking about this with some other colleagues and I, I'm, I hope to see uh, more people sort of take to uh, you know, to take to their social media or any medium that they're able to use, that they're able that they're that they're well versed in, to to just communicate with one another uh, without, uh, you know, at the same time without sort of you know without 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 alienating others because alienation is never a good thing. Whether you're alienating people, you know, uh, by nature of like you know being in silos and and or or small offices and not communicating, or whether you're alienating people through maybe language that people can't understand or, or, or access yeah. yeah yeah we definitely need to address the language but also as well I think academia needs to start becoming more reflective about its unwillingness to talk about drug taking but we're you know we're, we're academics and you know it seems to me that the alcoholism is endemic to academia you know? oh my god alcohol is endemic to most <laughs> social situations and particularly in anglophone culture because I find this you know, compared to the country that I'm from, where I think, you know, there's definitely been an upward trend with uh, alcohol and young people, like young people are definitely drinking more uh, and find more occasions to drink and drinking differently compared to their parents' generation. But still, like, you know, the the, the, the way in which, like, the, the, the level at which alcohol is embedded in every social situation in, in, in the UK is incredible <laughs> like for me I, I just I could you know I, like often I can't believe it I can't believe how much people drink <laughs> it's so funny it's just like you having another one what <laughs> so yeah and also like people are saying in the film you know when you say you don't want to drink people are like are you sure babe are, are you all right like <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just some fancy drink right now. I have this all the time, but it really kind of made me think as well that that actually, um, you know, that kind of like, you know, I was discussing this with you the other day about semiology and and the social harms that are done through through legislation and stuff like that, and the kind of hidden social harms that we don't realise that we're that we're experiencing when activities are they're not inherently damaging in themselves. Are, are sort of prohibited to us. I think, you know, I think that, that society loses a lot when we are not able to have those kind of bonding experiences that you can often have in terms of dancing and in terms of drugs, except in, you know, sort of like places where it's deemed suitable. So I'm thinking, you know, sort of dance floors are sort of like increasingly sort of, pol pol uh, sort of policed, but but sort of festivals, okay, that's okay. Everything so everything gets suspended for a festival with a you know a massive kind of um, corporate interest, you know, and you know that kind of negotiation that goes on around drugs and when drugs can be used. Yeah, mm. I think I think it's like I think in terms of in terms of harm, I think a lot of the harm that people experience, say people who are done are not criminalized for their drug use. Yeah. Uh, I think they experience harm because they are uh, themselves uh, making themselves, uh, you know, um, you know, they, they're internalizing stigma. So they are then, uh, you know, living through this, this kind of stigma and they're feeling guilty, they're feeling ashamed and all that kind of guilt and shame, I think eventually um, plays on, on, on people's 
well-being. It plays on their psyche. It plays on their, and so, and so that kind of prevents, I think, people from, uh, you know, from from being, you know, fully fully realized and healthy because, you know, maybe they're thinking about, oh, I should have done that. Oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a fail. I'm a failure. I'm a bad person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that's partly harmful. And of course, you know, in the festival environment and in a club environment, uh, you know, with the policing um, or the or the kind of control, you know, people may end up, you know, doing drugs in really unsafe ways mm-hmm. as well. So they may end up like, you know, um, doing it, doing them in like really dirty environments or in toilets. They may end up like taking more than they meant to because, you know, they, they're just not, you know, they, they're rushed, they're being rushed in or out. Um, um yeah, I mean, they, they will go unsupervised, of course, you know, they will take drugs that they haven't tested, so they don't know what, what how potent they are, or whether they even what, what, what it says on the tin. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues around the, the consequences of, of prohibition and kind of uh, policing of, of, of certain substances. So it's difficult, it's, it's difficult. But I suppose as well, what, what, like, it wasn't really touched on in in this um, in this deb- you know this particular debate, but which I've I've heard you talk about with your other work, is the harms that the the increased harms that are done to people, in an attempt to save them from other types of drugs. And I watched a TED talk that you did a couple of years ago, and you made this point, and it really resonated with me because I've you know I've, I've I'm aware of this as well. The, the dangers of, say, methadone, mm. you know, and how much more damaging that is for people than, say, heroin is. I mean, you know, this isn't an advert for heroin, but, you know, so methadone is very hard to withdraw, withdraw from and has that really, really negative phys- physical effects in ways that people don't necessarily sort of uh, think about, you know, like, for example, it's really bad effects on your teeth and your bones and stuff like that. And, you know, and I, and I just think sort of sometimes this kind of nanny state suffocates to protect and that, that this sense was really coming through in your video that there's... I mean it, it makes absolutely no sense like you know people like that input like the international network of people who use drugs and like other um, um, other drug user activists have been saying for ages and there is solid evidence from the from um, from uh, professor I think it was professor John Strang at London School of Hygiene who did a who did a study on this uh, you know, ages ago, which said that you know you got you ought to give people diamorphine. That's a better script than than methadone will ever be. And I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that methadone doesn't work for some people, but obviously with methadone you you can use heroin on top, so you can potentially be on a script and then go out and still you know acquire heroin off the street and then and use on top. And you know it's and literally every single person who has been given a diamorphine script as 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 kind of demonstrated that their their the quality of life is is much better than somebody that is on a methadone script yeah so you know why give methadone i don't know like it's a hangover from the 70s it's cheaper maybe i i don't know like it makes absolutely no sense but um you know it tends to be the most popular you know um in, in up here substitute up here substitution treatment it tends to be the most popular option uh, uh it's and again i'm not saying it doesn't work for some people but you know it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the main option i mean obviously there is suboxone and you know buprenorphine and stuff that also seems to work for other people and it seems to be better overall in terms of um health uh, you know of um health impact uh in the kind of medium term and long term but yeah it's I don't know it's it, it, it's beyond me it's beyond me it's frustrating so how do you see the rave scene coming back after covid how badly has it been affected by covid I mean what's going on out there now <laughs> it's it's I mean so basically there, there was a, a lot of a, a lot of raves were happening mm. uh, at, at the start especially uh, after the relaxation of the first lockdown last summer um, and there, there, the, you know, there was a sense also that, um, you know, local communities were both, uh, I think, upset by it, but also some of them were quite sympathetic. Yeah. Also because a lot of the raves were being organized by like young, you know, young people who, um, you know, I guess essentially felt like they, um, they had nothing to, to lose and nowhere else to, to go and be. And they'd rather, 
uh, they'd rather have have a get together. Um, I think somebody who wrote a Vice article did a bit of research uh, saying that there was three types of raves. One was the type of rave where the organizers just wanted to like make loads of money from people. So they didn't care about the kind of conditions of the place. Maybe it would be indoors. It wouldn't really be any, it wouldn't be COVID safe in the slightest. Um, and then there would be like other kind of, uh, you know, kind of hush hush raves for a more experienced and a kind of an older kind of more seasoned crowd. Uh, which would be, you know, which you wouldn't know about, and it would be very much like in the, you know, in the network, in the group. And then, yeah, the more sort of like uh, DIY young people's crews. Yeah. And so that was going on in the summer. The problem, you know, that it was the, the policing. The policing became more intense, and uh, they, um, you know, there was an emergency, um, an emergency uh, legislation whereby they would uh, charge ten thousand pounds. Uh, to, uh, you know, as, as a penalty for rave organizers. And I think something like 100 to 200 pounds uh, 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 to punters. Wow. So, so obviously that put a lot of people off. Well, it puts some people off, especially the people who don't have any money. So, you know, your young DIY type crews uh, wouldn't be able to afford such a steep uh, penalty. And I think some still went ahead because they've got that kind of protest mentality and they, you know, they're like, fuck the police type uh, approach. Uh, but yeah, I think for the most part, um, there was less, uh, less and less raves, you know, over the second lockdown. Yeah. Um, but I think there's going to be, again, there's going to be a, a, an emergence of illegal raves again in the summer. But, you know, this is, this is on the backdrop is the new, uh, the new bill, uh, which is very much, it's, it's, it's so, you know, it, it's basically like the 94 bill, which was basically about criminalizing raves. It was like, you know, and any gathering of more than 10 people where a repetitive beat is heard is, you know, is, is um, you know, is undesirable. And, you know, I, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was very much about. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, also as well, I mean, it, I suppose, I, I suppose the sort of like lockdown has been like a real reset about how we socialise as well, isn't it? Because I will not mention the name of the town that I live in, but I live in a very funky seaside town. And um, basically, like all through lockdown, the beaches have just been hopping, you know, like, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of sensibly distant bonfires and people will be out there all night. And it's kind of, I, I don't know, I think COVID has almost reset the way that we party. But what really struck me when I was, I was um, listening to, to and watching your podcast and listening to the film is how much we desperately need a sort of ultra realist approach to to drug ethnographies. I mean, you know, I'm the daughter of like young women, yeah, who are in their 20s now, but there was a period of time before COVID when I was picking up people every weekend from, from laybys, you know, like literally my children would emerge from a wood, yeah, and they're, they're having a real experience, but, you know, we're not kind of really, that's not really coming through in the data or the research, and we need that, we need to kind of go back to basics, don't we, just really get out there and do some research. I think so, I think um, we, we're hopefully, if all goes well, we're planning to um, also do some research in Malta to try mm -hmm. to kind of get get a sense for uh, how you know similar or different the narratives of people are in the Maltese context but I just think you're right it's like so so that the there is something about a kind of spontaneous DIY uh, rave um, which is very, an intimate affair let's say that uh, is often a rite of passage for a lot of young people at least in the UK you know and by young I mean pre you know in, in their teens you know like 15, 16, 17, you know, before they can go out and drink legally and go to clubs and whatnot. And I just think that that sort of, uh, it, you know, that kind of rite of passage for many people is, is um, you know, it's, it's, it's a magical thing because it's where they first, you know, come out of their bedroom and they learn how to sort of relate with others and they learn how to, to be in a space with other people, but also to take the space, a space that is public, to have fun, to, to experience pleasure. And that's really important as an education, I think, because, you know, then you go out and every other space is privatized. You have to consume, you know, you have to kind of pay to get in. You have to consume a substance that you pay for. You know, everything is quite, you know, and you have to have money in order to go out. It's not it's not a cheap affair. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's I think it's 
you know, it's, it's, it's important that people, you know, have that experience. It's important that those experiences are understood also for, uh, in, a, in a more romantic way as well, in a more kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, hear, I hear you. So <clears throat> how did you feel about bringing your sort of like academic persona into your private life? Because you've basically laid yourself bare, haven't you? You, you know, and, and to an extent, the people in the films, how, how did that feel? Did that feel kind of risky to do that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, at first, you know, the, the reason why I'm not in the film to, as a participant, because I, I, at first I was like, maybe I should, you know, do the double thing of like being, you know, I'm the person who interviews, but I'm also a participant. The reason why I didn't do that is because the film was actually uh, funded by the University of Greenwich, which is where I work. So I was like, maybe I shouldn't do that for this film, <laughs> maybe the next film when I get external, you know, I, I, I had some in, you know, internal dialogue. And also I talked to, to, to the other project partners about what they thought about me being in the film and not being in the film. But yeah, eventually I, I just thought it wasn't ethically, uh, pers- like for my personal ethics, uh, uh, for my own um, feminist ethics, it wouldn't be okay to to put the camera onto these people and, and, and ask them to lay themselves bare without also doing the same myself. So I... I and I think, in a way, uh, you know, the, the personal experience was what pushed me towards uh, doing a project that was about people in dance first. Because, you know, I was the, the young raver at, at 17. I was the, the, you know, the recreational drug user. So I wanted for that to be, um, you know, I wanted for something that I understood intimately to be, uh, to be something that I also uh, I, I looked at academically because you know it, it to me it, again as, as a feminist researcher it, it just makes sense it's it's obvious <laughs> it's not even yeah it's a no-brainer yeah basically. I mean like in my own experience recently where I've like I've spent the last couple of years interviewing sort of like street level sex workers the vast majority of whom are, are like addict uh, are addicts because you know just the level of trauma that they would be in and I would I would interview people you know, and it's like that, it's that awareness of drugs and that kind of openness about drugs allows you to interview people that wouldn't necessarily relate to you. But also as well, you have a knowledge around drugs that mean, makes it important in an interview situation. So, you know, if, you, if you've got an addict, you can't really interview them what's their still, you know, what they need to use. But then there's a time period after they've used where, you know, they're, they're just gouging out. They're no good for anything. They can't talk. So it's like, what do you do with someone like that? OK, you give them sort of a sugary drink. The sugary drink will bring them straight around. So you get that, that window of opportunity between need and having satisfied that need when, you know, when they're actually able to give informed consent and you can interview them. But there's this kind of like this, this um, there's a sort of like a sort of a, a sort of double standard with the universities, where, whereas they want us to, to, to study these interesting and, you know, research attracting areas, but at a remove, mm. you know, I can talk about my drug use because it's at a distance and, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't use drugs anymore. So it looks like I've reformed. Yeah. yeah. So I'm allowed to talk about it. But if I was at the, if I was still using it, wouldn't be it wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be able to talk about it. So it kind of maintains this empirical distance from read between research and the people that we're trying to research, which is why I really enjoyed what you did, because, you know, it's a kind of like trying to get past the universities, as we always do. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a hangover from when 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 people thought that research was objective and the knowledge had to be produced in order to be objective and the ultimate truth and it was very masculine masculinist detached you know idea about what knowledge was and what it was for um so you know i think and you know i'm not i'm not saying that people who don't have experience with drugs or or sex work that they can't do research on it but i i feel like you know, there needs to be uh, alliances and partnerships uh, in knowledge, uh, which, um, you know, which bring together people with different backgrounds and different skills and different mm-hmm. interests to be able to talk to each other about, uh, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, to produce better knowledge effectively, you, you're not going to do it on your own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because your mind, your brain is limited, your mind is limited, your experience is limited, and your experience necessarily impacts the kind of your, your your horizon, your view, your perspective, the kind of things that 
that you understand the not and can and cannot say. Yeah. So, so I just think that, you know, if we accept that every, everyone's perspective is necessarily limited by design, then we can then kind of move on to talk about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we create, you know, more useful knowledge that is, you know, more representative of like a diversity of experiences that is inclusive and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah. And so starting from personally, like yeah, starting from my or trying to marry my personal experience and interests with academic research is a good starting point to feel like, uh, you know, or, or to be able to build from. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's definitely something that I hope will mean that ultimately I can generate, you know, uh, more humble, but also more informed uh, uh, and interesting stuff uh, compared to, you know, pretending like I was, a detached <laughs> scholar, uh, you know, looking at things from the outside and kind of making a neutral assessment. Yeah, I think it's important as well, like, and you touch in this in this work, but I've heard you talk about this before, when we talk about whose knowledge, whose knowledge is, is heard. And I think we have to be conscious that, you know, as researchers under the shadow of the university, that our voice can drown out, you know, lived knowledge you know, maybe deeper knowledge. And, it, you know, the fact that you want to study something, if you do not have personal experience of that, you, you know, there needs to be some kind of um, self-reflection. If I don't have personal knowledge of this and I have to find ways into this community, should I be the person who's studying this? Yeah. I think that there's been a, most recently, I think there's been a, a political shift, a paradigm shift around this, uh, whereby people used to be happy to be research participants and to be kind of to, to, to enter into a, a, a hierarchical or asymmetric relationship with the researcher where the researcher was the knowledge bearer and they would extract information from the participant and then they would, you know, kind of interpret it and then put it out there as yeah. theirs, as their own, right? And I think, you know, that's, all of that is changing. Uh, you know, we're entering into like a, a, a different paradigm. It's more individualistic. It's more person-centered. And the whole, uh, you know, discussion about intersectionality, positionality, uh, uh, you know, all of that is 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 decentering uh, power and centering individual experiences as as the main source. Um, so so as a result of that, I think that. You know, research has got it. Like research in academia has to change. It has to respond to this. Yeah. And I think the way I see it, the, the the best way to do it is to enter into partnerships, knowledge partnerships with people, where people have a, a stake, and not just a stake, but where people are also recognized for the contribution that they make, uh, and for the knowledge that they bring. Mm. You know, not as like you know, I'm going to extract knowledge from you and I'm going to pluck it into the project and pretend like it comes from my brain. But, but as like, you know, we're entering into this partnership and then you have a stake and then you make decisions and we, we make decisions together and I contribute and you contribute. And I like that kind of complementarity idea. Yeah, sort of participatory activist research. But even that is still problematic, isn't it? Because, you know, if, if we're the people bringing the money to the research you know, and, and ultimately we are the people that maybe sort of transcribe the research, that, that interpret the research. There's still a power sort of dynamic that, that's difficult to, to, to negotiate. I mean, I, I've been exploring sort of ideas around uh, sort of ultra-realism where, you know, basically we're planting everything that we think we know and just send people out on with, you know, with you know to go and carry out ethno, ethno, ethnographies that aren't actually looking to answer questions. Because quite often this is the issue, isn't it? Is that we set up a question based on what we think we know, you know, and, you know, maybe sometimes what we need to do is just people, having people that are just able to, to immerse themselves in the communities where they belong to in order to sort of generate uh, research. I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, obviously there's, there's a different, like, so to me, doing an ethnography is like a dream, right? It's like, a, a, I, I wish that I you know, uh, that I could have the, the, like, the, the time 
and the money and the investment to be able to just be like, okay, I'm university, you know, give me some funding and give me a sabbatical and I'm just going to go away and immerse myself and then write. And then, you know, you know, have, cause I think, I think an ethnography is a beautiful concept, but it's a very uh, time consuming and emotionally involving uh, process, which the neoliberal university doesn't necessarily account for in its, uh, way of working in its way of like saying, you know, you get the funding in November, money has to be spent by July. And, you know, it's, it's very, you know, you need to, you need to answer questions that are useful. You need to demonstrate impact. You need to have X number of publications by, you know, so, so essentially you're talking about the principles of what, what knowledge generation and research should be and what you should be for versus what, the neoliberal university and what the ref strategy and what the kind of higher education policy has as a whole thinks research should be about. It should be about, you know, addressing hard questions, you know, like, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how much, uh, how, what percentage of overall funding in the UK was COVID related in the past year, but like, you know, all of a sudden, I, I mean, I understand that we have to respond to COVID as, you know, as, as an, as a, as a, as a, I don't know, uh, Something that, yeah, as a, as a problem that affected us all and that we needed to understand it and so on. But but from that to saying that, you know, basically there was no funding <laughs> unless you had a COVID thing in. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's limiting. It's limiting. Yeah. But also as well, I think as we sort of researchers, we, we, it's almost like, you know, you get into the university system or the research system and actually what you realise is that it's not working with you. It wants statistics. It wants numbers it can crunch. And, you know, that, that somehow as researchers, we have to negotiate our, our way around this kind of quants hungry sort of system that we find ourselves in. And actually what I found is that, that actually you can do ethnography in a kind of like a down low way when you're doing other types of, of research. So, you know, I was involved with this quants research for the London School of Hygiene, but the majority of the research went on in the time that we were looking for people to interview before and after the interview, and when we were buying them the, buying them the McDonald's. That, that's when the majority of the ethno, ethnographic stuff really went on, you know? So it's almost like you have to kind of, snatch ethnography from the jaws of this quants monster that now owns the university <laughs> but you know researchers there are ways you know we can do this we just have to be creative yeah no you're right you're right I, I, I'm being pessimistic there I think I think I'm still struggling myself uh, to find a uh, like a working compromise between the uh, neoliberal university's uh, demands and my own, uh, I, th I think my own uh, principles and, and, and ethos and, and, and desires as a, as a researcher. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm still quite young and inexperienced. So hopefully through practice and, <laughs> and, 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 and perseverance, uh, I'll, you know, I'll get to, you know, I'll, I'll get to understand it a bit better and maybe like, you know, let's say play the system to my own advantage yeah. Or, or yeah. So have you got ways, are you sort of like, have you got new research kind of formulated? Have you got other ways that you can, you know, like we've, we've mentioned that this this uh, film has been a really good way for you, for you to get people's voices out. So have you got any other sort of like ideas of how we can make people's more voices more visible in, in the debate about drug taking? Yeah, so what I'd like to do next, uh, you know, <laughs> what we'd like to do now, we've, we've been talking about, uh, is to kind of widen out the scope of the discussion uh, to involve, uh, to, to bring together kind of uh, nighttime economy stakeholders. And I mean that in the kind of broadest possible sense. So it could be promoters, DJs, people who, um, you know, will kind of use nighttime spaces, but also are part of the nighttime economy, bouncers, you know, anybody who's involved, uh, and also punters and, and, and drug users, and sort of have a, a much broader kind of set of views and perspectives about, you know, how they, uh, you know, how they live through the nighttime economy. Mm -hmm. And I think the pandemic has given us this unprecedented uh, opportunity to take stock and think about the future. And so I'm thinking about the future. In thinking about the future, I want to get yeah a much a, a more a variety of different perspectives about what what does the ideal utopian future look like for you. Um, and I think I'd like to uh, 
I guess, look at the intersection between uh, drugs, well-being, uh, change, yeah. um, and harm reduction. Uh, harm reduction kind of understood in the, in the widest possible sense. Yeah. Uh, so harm reduction as maybe a principle that informs everything that goes on in that, in that environment from relations of, uh, from non-exploitative relations to mental well-being to uh, harm reduction in a traditional sense around drugs and drug testing and that sort of stuff. You know, all of that, uh, you know, I, I want to try to sort of weave that together to see, to see what happens. So just uh, yeah, widening out the scope, still thinking maybe about drug policy reform, but thinking about all the other stakeholders involved and, 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 th- and, and asking them what, what they think about the future. Yeah, it just occurs to me as well. We never we never ask the really elderly about their drug use, do we? You know, like that kind of lifetime of drug use, a successful drug use, i.e., you're still alive, you're healthy. What better evidence of your successful drug use? We that would be amazing. I mean, yeah. you know, because there's so many sort of like, you know, like considering sort of uh, sort of drugs are kind of like liminal. Drug taking is liminal. It occupies liminal spaces. There's a lot of stuff that we, we 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 assume that we leave outside. So, you know, but class plays a plays a massive part in the debate around drugs. But then so does age and so does poverty. And you know, um, yeah, it's just I just think they just off it always opens more doors than it answers. And and that's what I really liked about your research, is that it really got me thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's there's loads more to be done. Like, there's loads more. Inter- you know, you know, even if we wanted to kind of, you know, run the same thing again, but then widen it out to a much bigger demographic in terms of age, in terms of like ethnic background and experiences mm-hmm. and all that. Like, you know, there's there's loads there. You know, that needs to be done. And you are right. Like, the, you know, older people who've had a successful drug using career. You know, we don't we don't know, we don't know who they are. We don't know about that. They don't necessarily. Well, you know. Maybe they come out and they say, oh, yeah, I was foolish in my youth, but now I'm reformed. Or they, they kind of joke about it, but it's, it's never something that is kind of seriously acknowledged or addressed. Um, even by artists and people in the, you know, people who, have in, uh, who are in the kind of entertainment industry, who I think tend to be, you know, the, the perfect candidate for that sort of, <laughs> for that, or assuming that they're, they're, they're the perfect ones for that sort of lifestyle. I was just yeah. thinking about the last time I saw my auntie who's in her late 60s and like when I came round she got me to roll all her splits for her because she can't do it because she can't arthritis and then got then called a friend round for me to do hers as well because like they're, they're arthritis they, they couldn't roll properly and they couldn't get a hang of like this mat that they bought so I, I rolled it for them but it's those sorts of discussions and those sorts of spaces that just get totally overlooked don't they we sort of like yeah. we tend to focus on certain types of drugs there's there's a drug hierarchy even within research mm, there is yeah there is I think <sighs> I mean, there's a drug hierarchy even within research, but also it depends on what the research is for. If it's like, are you looking at problematic drug use? Then you'll, you know, you'll be looking at heroin and crack cocaine in the context of the UK, maybe others in, in other in other countries. Oh, are you looking at recreational drug use? Then it's like MDMA. You know what I mean? It's like it's very, yeah, yeah it's very sort of one 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 note. <laughs> exactly. So. So, um, you know, we'll start, we'll start to wind down now, but who was, who was this like, research for? What was the purpose of this research? Who were you trying to reach with this? I think, like, in the first instance, I'd say it's for people who, whose experiences are similar to the ones that participants are talking about, um, who may feel, as a result, that their experiences are... Uh, legitimated or indeed that they feel like they can relate you know I just I like the idea of well initially when we made the film before COVID we thought we were going to screen it you know around the country and that we'd have debates in in like lecture rooms or like small cinemas or whatever so we thought you know we you know it would be nice to get a mixed audience of like you know people who have those same experiences and therefore can relate but also people whose experiences are very different and therefore they're curious and they want to understand more. Um, you know, we had such people in a couple of screenings that we did, you know, people who were really into dance floors, but not into drugs uh, or uh, people who are into drugs, but not into dance floors. <laughs> but also, um, I don't know, the, 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 the most um, touching uh, thing for me was 
uh, when um, uh, somebody who I who I knew uh, through, like basically my mate's mom came with her son. Her son is really into dance floors and takes drugs. She doesn't at all. And uh, they, you know, used to get into like massive rows and arguments about it. They used to kind of not really kind of talk about it or like he would hold back from being honest. She would get upset about his ways and stuff like that. And, you know, they wouldn't have an honest discussion about it. They wouldn't be able to. And apparently after they came to watch the film, they did. They were able to like just have this like for the first time they were able to kind of have an open discussion. She was like, I think I have a better understanding about my son. And I, mm. And that to me was really powerful. And I thought, you know, maybe there is something in this film or maybe in, in things like this to, to be able to kind of enable that kind of honest discussion between parents and their children or, yeah. 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 Um, and, we'll, we'll, you know, for people listening, we'll put a link in, in the blog that's attached to this so that you can go and look at the film. And if you want to reach out to Julia, I'm sure she'll be pleased to hear from you. Um, so for people that are listening, can you tell us what the name of the film was? And can you also tell us the name of the article, the journal, the article that came off the back of this? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so the, the, the film is called People and Dance Floors Narratives of Drug Taking. And uh, the, we have a website, uh, www.peopleanddancefloors.com. Hopefully easy enough to remember. So yeah, so uh, and everything that we've done, the film itself, um, the trailers for the film uh, and the sort of teasers, if you're not sure whether you want to watch the film, but you want to sort of take a quick look, are there as well. Uh, we have a podcast series, a few kind of uh, bits of blogging and a few articles as well, which kind of detail a bit more about uh, just, just our motivation for the project and uh, the, the sort of different people involved. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the article, the, there is an academic article that came out, which is a kind of, I guess, auto-ethnographic, you could say, at least in part. Uh, and it's called We Ourselves and Us. Hopefully that'll be enough. It's in the International Journal of Drug Policy. Yeah. Uh, part of a special issue, actually, on research and activism in drug policy. So I think lots of the articles in that special issue will be interesting for people who are interested in drugs and drug policy. So what have you got in the pipeline at the moment? What are you working on currently? I'm working on a book proposal, Rachel. <laughs> I've gone mad. We'll see. We'll see. But um, so, yeah, a lot of my... A lot of my, uh, I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to write a book. See if I've got enough um, ste- steam, oomph <laughs> in me to do that. Uh, but yeah, also, you know, um, the Malta project came out of uh, just an idea, basically. Well, actually, somebody from Malta got really excited about the People and Dance First project and was like, "This is amazing! I want to be involved." And I was like, "Great, let's do something together." So. Um, so, so yes, and essentially, I'm I'm open for um, anybody who wants to do something that is, you know, under that umbrella. As I said, I have, uh, you know, been in, recently in contact with uh, PhD students and people at sort of different points in their kind of early career research who, uh, you know, are wanting to collaborate in different ways, using the blog as a platform, or like maybe doing uh, different bits of d- different bits of film, um, and make a contribution. Uh, somebody who's a poet made a contribution uh, talking about uh, their last experience of dancing before uh, before COVID happened and okay. kind of reminiscing about that. So yeah, just, I don't know, like open platform and uh, happy to have more discussions with people and also to be um, called out and criticized by people about things that I should have, you know, I should have done or things that I, we could still do with it. Yeah, with the project. So my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the, the University of Kent. And I've been talking to, like most entertainingly, to Julia Zampini, who's a criminology lecturer at the University of Greenwich in London. And thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>